0: Hello and welcome to the uh, New Books Network. I'm Bernardo Batislazo and today as our guest we have Jacob Feinig who is uh, at Binghamton University in the State University of New York. He is a sociologist who interrogates the historically changing politics of money creation in British and colonial America and the United States. He teaches a range of undergraduate and graduate courses on money and debt human rights, social justice, and migration. Jacob, thank you very, very much for being with us today at New Books Network.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, uh, Jacob, today we're going to talk about your book, Moral Economies of Money. And before that, and it's um, customary here at NBN, we would like to know a little bit about uh, you and who is Jacob in his own words. Okay, so maybe
1: I'll say two words about how I came to study what I what I'm actually studying. So I learned about uh, political economy and money and money creation. I started learning about all those issues just around the time that uh, Austria, where I grew up, uh, moved away from the shilling, which is, which is the currency it's, it's had for a long time, to the euro. And uh, with that came, as as many people know. Uh, a number of huge institutional shifts that really changed possibilities for government spending for austerity for uh, the relation between economic policy and and really democratic processes so and I started as I started to understand it I was looking around uh, you know to to the people that I, I looked up to and and my peers and it seemed like there was relatively few little awareness of what was going on so i I thought there is something that i want to understand i want to understand that there was this huge change where basically a lot of monetary powers were moved to the european level away from the national level and with all, with all the implications that that has, and yet I don't understand it, and as far as I can tell, no one around me understands it. It There, there seems to be something wrong with that, and I want to understand that better. So I, I, I started you know uh, to do a, a project centered on the EU and, and the, the Eurozone uh, about the public understanding of money, and I didn't get very far because I didn't really have a lot... To talk about with people because people just told me, well, you know, it's convenient now I can, you know, travel to Spain or Belgium and you know, and I don't have to to, to change money anymore. But no one seemed to understand what that means in terms of politics and, you know. So so I, I I didn't really get anywhere. And then in a second step, I looked. I started looking at at U.S. history, and there you actually have many many controversies about who should make money under what conditions for what purposes uh, and not just the amount but the very mechanism uh, through which money comes into existence was repeatedly at the center of political controversies so and that's that's where uh, that's the story of my book it's rooted in the eurozone but then it ended up being uh uh, a, a story about you know uh, money in first the British colonial North North America and then uh, the United States from the seventeenth century until today.
0: Thank you for that. But it's uh, as you were talking, it it um, came to mind that not it's not very common for sociologists to be interested in money. There are very few sociologists. They they tend to be interested in other things. So how how was it that you know rather than looking at it from an economics perspective, you you were so gravitating from sociology to money or how how was it that, that you bring these things together? Because you're also talking about political economy in your in your interests.
1: Yes, so so I I would say that it has probably changed a little bit in the last maybe two or three decades. There were you know those big pioneers like Geoffrey Ingham and Viviana Zelizer who really claimed money as something that is, uh, you know a a topic that sociologists should be interested in and have something to say about. Um, what I wanted to do is, is just I'm, I'm adding a layer to those already existing sociological understandings, which is, you know, on the one hand, uh, Viviana Zelliser does, you know, looks at who represents one important strand of the sociology of money. She looks at everyday experiences and how people organize their monetary lives and organize different kinds of money and how that, uh, you know, structures society and structures relations within households um that's on the one hand you know this experiential level and then you have the structuralists like joffrey ingham who look more at you know very large-scale institutions and how they work you know almost like institutionalist economists or heterodox economists so you have those two strands and what, what i'm doing is i try to bring those together and uh infuse them with you know historical experiences so how do how does the experience of money the everyday experience of money of having it not having it how does that some lead some people in some situations or in many situations in the case of the us to cl- make claims and to organize to change the very mechanisms of money creation how does that happen, right? And, and on, the, on the one hand, how does that happen? And, and when it happens, I call it moral economies of money, when people have the knowledge and the capacity and the organizational capacity to make claims about who should create money, how it should be created, for whom and for whom it should not be created and who should not be allowed to do that. So those are, I call those moral economies of money uh, using a, a concept from E.P. Thompson. But on the other hand, I'm also looking at the other side, which is how how come that in certain conditions and in certain historical con- under certain historical conditions and in many historical periods, including uh, ours to a certain extent, how is that uh, how does that seem out of reach? and how is there this separation between the larger uh, mechanisms? Of money creation and, and everyday experience, right? So 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 under what conditions do people have that sociological imagination of seeing themselves as part of a changing monetary uh, monetary arrangements? And under what conditions do they lose that knowledge and con- can no longer and no longer have those kinds of agency that I call moral economies of money?
0: Thank you. Yes, and this is certainly, and it's one of the major contributions of your book, to think about how people have been at different points in time active in the creation and shaping of money and monetary institutions. And and we'll come back to that because uh, to understand this, we, we, we need to explain a couple of concepts. But before that, I, I wanted to ask you, why was it that you Case to do this in the US and not in your native au- Austria?
1: So, as far as I can tell, and I haven't looked at this in great detail, but I think the US is the best documented case for uh, systematic, you know, non elite uh, involvement in money creation of relatively broad groups that make claims about money. Uh, and because there was an already existing literature and, and 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 I could read up on that you know it took me several years but it was relatively quick so I could develop a a, a, a long narrative uh, of of you know my, of, my, of how money polit- politics changes over time because there was already such a, a strong uh, and very highly developed literature whereas in Europe I think that does not exist uh, anywhere else like right? for instance in Austria
0: right thank you and then let's let's explain before we go into the into the bulk of the book these um, underlying differences uh, between uh, ways of thinking about money and on the one hand we have the um, way that it's portrayed in the media and it's in basic textbooks which is this efficiency driven story of money creation from barter to um some commodity the introduction of 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 precious metals um uh, and 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 therefore uh, uh you know paper money and lastly you know as greater efficiency is is in that in in a in a, in a very short way um uh, we we have digital money but you are coming from a different tradition to money creation which is the cartelist tradition and in in this tradition if you you you, you, you set me right basically money is seen as anything that will you know when, when there is trade between people there is a um, creation of a asset and liability in, in in this exchange and whatever settles the that Uh, exchange that double entry bookkeeping that is what is money for for a cartelist tradition Um, am i being fair or would you like to uh explain this a little bit more as you are the expert on
1: on this maybe i should add that you know there are those two big traditions and and one way of thinking about them is that one tradition uh Kind of sees money as exogenous, as something that is, you know, that's a, uh, that is outside, that comes from outside into the the economic system, and we can kind of like forget where it comes from once it's there. So it's it's and that's very much uh, connected to our everyday experience of money, where you know we it's it's very dramatically present or absent in our everyday lives. Um, but it's but 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 we're kind of like disconnected. From the question, where does it come from, right? So, so that's the exogenous, the, the external approach to money. That's the typical one. That's that's you know present in most uh, econ textbooks. It's very connected to the barter narrative. That's the exogenous one. The endogenous one is that money creation is internal to economic dynamics to political dynamics to all kinds of social dynamics it's itself an integral part of how we relate to each other so so chartalism and you know various strands of post-Keynesian economics uh, think of money as endogenous as something that needs to be analyzed as Itself something that matters, and so 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 so. What do you say about the de- definition of money? Is that which settles debt? That is correct, and I would probably add something, which is that a, you need a governance institution that creates that and that makes it accepted, and that creates an institutional framework for acceptance. And that institutional framework, it can be many things. It can be either, you know, creating. Tax obligations, which forces people to to pay taxes in the very thing that they create, uh, or other, you know, or or, or or saying that this this money is acceptable for private debts, for fees, for fines, for all kinds of things. So those are all moves on the part of the governance institution to. Um, to make a money accepted. And there can be more than one governance institution, right? So, so neo-charitalists and MMT theorists think about mon- money not as, as one thing that comes from the central government, but it's as various monetary instruments that are arranged in a, in a hierarchy, right? At the top, you have uh, the state money, uh, at the slight, slightly lower is bank created money, etc and all the way down to Starbucks gift cards and you know airline miles and maybe an IOU that I issue to you. right. So that, that there's a hierarchy of moneyness and a hierarchy of uh, acceptability and a hierarchy of you know of of, of, how, of
0: of a money's reach. Right. Thank you. Yes, that is. So obviously, well, uh, obviously this endogeneity of money or this or, or, or having as your uh, starting assumption that money is endogenous to the system, that, it's, uh, that it needs to be explored and particularly the governance structures that create money is it sets you in a completely different path than taking the, the, the alternative. View, and I should uh, emphasize uh, or clarify for for our listeners that um, uh, in the footnotes to the to the podcast and and in the, I mean, the blog from uh, New Books Network, I'll leave some of the references that we have mentioned as well as links to uh, Wikipedia pages that uh, explain uh, the uh, things as the cartelist approach and MMT, which is the modern, modern monetary Theory. If they are interested in, in looking at this, right? So, we we are concerned then is those um, those um, institutions, those governance structures that allow uh, people to take part, active part in the creation and uh, shaping of what is money, and then you introduce this historical. Um, a narrative. So, you, you 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 provide in the book a, a, um, a great introduction to this moral economies of, of money, and and then um, <clears throat> uh, provide um, this idea in chapter three. Well, that is briefly introduced in in the introduction, but you explore it in 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 greater depth uh, from chapter three onwards, which is your idea of monetary. Silences. Would you like to tell us a little bit more of what you mean by monetary silences?
1: Sure, totally. So, so you know, if money is something that is internal to the system, that is itself something that's political, and that is itself something like, let's say, the weight, the weight relation that almost everyone. Admits that you know the relation between employers and and workers is something that's political. It changes all the time, depending on whether or not people are unionized, depending on uh, all kinds of histor- et cetera, de- depending on all kinds of historical conditions. Right. So, uh, so, 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 therefore, if money is something like that, if money is a is a is a social relation between between the people who who issue money and the people who are only money money users, and, uh, and that's in fact a relation that can change. Um, if if we think of it in, in that way as, you know, politically and endogenous, it's not just a technical thing. It means that if it's endogenous, it means it has to have a politics. So if we think of it like that, then uh, its absence requires explanation. I think. You know, so so what 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 I want to say is if there if there is a relation, if there is a central area of governance that is not that, there, that there does not have a lot of political controversy or knowledge, then the absence of that political controversy or the relative absence or the relative you know disconnection or the absence of knowledge requires explanation and to, 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 to grasp those processes where that knowledge disappears or is taken away. I I invented that term monetary silencing, uh, you know, inspired by Paulo Freire, who says, you know, silence is not just a silence. Silence is actually a really dramatic uh, moment when someone cannot speak, right? So it has to be the the outcome of a historical process. And so I look at monetary silencing, silencing as something that happens, you know, on the level of discourse and knowledge, Right, where, where different ways of thinking about, about money emerge and are uh, and, and, and disappear but also you know all kinds of other forms of, of social change uh, changing institutions making them look different from the perspective of money users and then talking about them in such a way that money comes to appear as external as exogenous right or you know but but in addition to, to institutional change and the creation of, of different kinds of knowledges that make money appear more distant, there was also repression and you know uh, mob actions on the one hand, but also organized military repression so monetary silencing is a multifaceted uh, process
0: thank you thank you Jacob. That was very interesting so something one concept that you introduced in in the book, which is uh Really interesting is this idea of silencing. Could you tell us a little bit more about how silencing works? Totally.
1: So, if you think about money as something that is internal to the system, that's internal to how people relate to each other, that's that the very fact of creating money is itself a political relation between. Uh, money users and the money issuer and that is a relation that can change because money users can make different claims and demands to change money creation and even uh, themselves attempt to create money and make it accepted so if we if we uh, if we start from that then the the process through which People lose knowledge of that you know because because they, they they had it in certain historical moments then that process is, is itself in need of explanation right so so the the situation in which most people live I, I would say live today which is they experience money as something that they can't really understand that's external to their lives not something that's that's very dramatic in, in the sense you know do I have it or not but they, they cannot or they haven't learned to articulate their position within the system of money creation today. So, so, so the process that leads from you know, one moment of moral, of moral economies of money to monetary silence, to, to experiencing money as something external that we cannot understand, I call that monetary silencing and that can be multifaceted, there is on the one hand the creation of institutions that make it harder to understand where money comes from and who makes it, Uh, there is the creation of different kinds of knowledges and and hierarchies of knowledge but there is also uh, actual physical violence uh, including armed repression uh, repeatedly so so we have monetary silencing is not one single process and it cannot you know but but it has happened repeatedly and with and it has repeatedly had the effect of marginal, marginalizing the kinds of knowledges that allow people to see money as you know money creation as internal to to politics and as part of the realm that they can influence
0: Thank you very much, Jacob. And then you have two big stories in in the book, uh, at least. That if you could tell us briefly um, how they they work as examples of these two extremes of monetary silences. On the on the one hand, you have modern day America, the the, the old British colonies, and the introduction of the of the greenback la- later on. And then, as a big silence, we have the New Deal. But let's let's talk a little bit first about that first example of how people are very active in in the shaping of money in early in whatever you you choose to um, uh, to uh, illustrate either early modern America or the introduction of the of the greenback
1: totally so let me just first maybe say that I wrote a book for for to an academic for an academic audience, but I also wrote it with the attempt to make all the things that we've been saying, you know, the theoretical things about endogenous money and charitalism, to make that more palpable to people. and and I do that by writing about monetary practices, right? So this is it's very much informed by theory, but it's it's about how different people, create money and, 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 and I wrote it so so people can understand that they can also become part of the process of thinking about money creation. So so it's organized as a pedagogical tool about about money. So, so and, and 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 to that end I, I look at those two big moments of very broad understanding of uh uh of, of charter list you know, monetary quote-unquote theory which is on the one hand colonial america 18th century uh america and the british colonies and then also again after the civil war with the populist movement and the greenbacks in both uh cases it was very clear that the legislature issues money directly so in the 18th century, it was even clearer than, than I would say in the 19th that that law, lawmakers decided about how much money to create, uh, what to spend it on, how it should reach a population. Should it reach a population through just by by giving so and so much money to each household, or against uh, should it should it be issued against real estate? As, uh, as a security or should it be issued to towns who could then lend it to, to inhabitants or decide to use it for public investment. And then so it was very clear that all that was very open from the design and printing of, the, of, of those bills of credits as they were called, to their use. But then also it was also very clear that they were uh, valuable because they were accepted in payment of taxes. And many, you know, several economic uh, theorists, including Farley Grubb, have written have written about this. That they become they became valuable because the government promised to accept them in payment of taxes. So, you know, settlers had to pay taxes, and they knew that they had to pay it in something. At some point, you know, they they paid. Parts of their taxes in kind by delivering staples or by working for the local government, but their preferred method was actually to pay in bills of credit. So, and 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 they knew that this that, that it was would would become generally accepted because uh, the, the the provincial governments promised to accept them in payment of taxes. So the entire and they wanted they, they petitioned the government to to either you know accept in you know in kind contributions and paper money uh they they they, they were or to not they they asked for uh, more money they they voted for people who promised to spend more money into existence and also it was very clear that money once it was uh you know retired through taxation then that that, it, that the government did not need that money because it, it was very often if it, if it was you know used or if it was no longer serviceable there was just a public burning of uh of of the the, the old money so it was very clear that taxes are not f- uh needed for revenue for for generating revenue for the, for the government taxes were only needed to make the money acceptable and to to make sure that it that everyone would uh would accept it so 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 that whole circuit that that entire circuit was very visible, and in that context, you had all kinds of uh, debates and controversies between different people and different classes and different uh, between merchants and smallholders and people who wanted uh, to export to Britain versus people who wanted to be more inward oriented, and, and they were all concerned with monetary design as the central or one of the central areas of conflict and something similar happened again after the civil war. Now, let me say that those are not, you know, moments of, uh, you know, I don't don't want to create a nostalgia for 18th century America, which was an extremely unequal place and an extremely undemocratic place also. So this was a very limited form of democracy. It was only a settler democracy, only propertied, uh, Settlers could vote, no one else. And uh, so, so, so this is not a political project that I would want to defend. I only look at it as a moment where large numbers of people understood the importance of money
0: creation. Right. And then we have the big silence that you, you place around the New Deal. And, and that I would... Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, the big silence in in, in monetary creation are around the New Deal. Why is it that you reinterpret the uh, the New Deal as a moment of monetary silence?
1: Okay, so it's one of the two big moments of monetary silencing. The first moment was uh, Jacksonian America, and the second, a moment which is maybe more interesting to to, to our listeners is the new deal which is very counterintuitive because most people have a, or uh, large numbers of people have a very positive view of the new deal and rightly so because it extended all kinds of socioeconomic economic rights uh, to you know to limited groups and in, in very limited ways uh, but, but nevertheless you know f- all the way from banking regulation to the creation of social security it's very often celebrated as a progressive uh, achievement so so how come i'm you know i i i felt the need to add a layer to our understanding of the new deal so i felt that need because it was it was very curious that it seemed like you know money politics and moral economies had popped up over and over again throughout us history so so, how come it that has not happened in the second half of the twentieth century, and it hasn't happened until recently? What were the processes that led from, you know, nineteenth-century uh, greenbacks and greenbackism to the to the almost total absence of, of you know moral economies and popular involvement? And I think that happened through the New Deal, and the book shows how that happened. So, so uh, you know, FDR and New Dealers were often, uh, you know, pressured by popular groups to, uh, you know, into, into making all kinds of, into creating all kinds of institutions and benefits, etc. And, and, and some of those or several of those groups had a charterist understanding of money. And so what w- what happened is that on the level of institutions, for instance, there was there was there were those those groups demanded that the federal government issue paper money to fulfill their demands. Okay, by paper money, I, I you know I, I mean it in the sense of money that was not convertible into anything else, and money that was not financed by issuing bonds or anything, money that was created into existence. Like in the 18th century, in a very and 19th century, in a very visible way. So, so, so they demanded that, and people can read up on that uh, in the book about the details of those different groups. And FDR sometimes fulfilled their demands, but always by doing two things. On the one hand, he never, uh, he never accepted legislative money creation direct legislative money creation which would would say you know uh congress decides to create you know to create this this much money in a direct way that was the first thing he never did even though he could have several times and people can read up on that too and on on the other hand he created uh a discourse a form of thinking about money in his, you know, especially in his, in his in his public speeches and in his fireside chats, that depict money as something that's not political, uh, that's that's kind of like always and already there, and that's outside of politics, and that's that, can, that no one can understand, and that people actually shouldn't understand. They should trust their banks, they should trust their chief executive, they should trust the institutions, but they're not. Uh, it's not; they're not required to understand where money comes from. So he had, and 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 I showed that in the book how he really systematically developed that, and he did that in such a way that it no longer depended on the idea that only gold or silver are real money. Right? That's a 19th century conservatism. That's a 19th century version of monetary silencing. So FD, FDR pioneered a way of thinking about about money that makes it unpolitical and external. Not not political and and endogenous, but without relying on gold. So in that sense, he's really the pioneer of monetary silencing in the twentieth century, or one of the pioneers, and and maybe one of the most successful ones. You know, throughout the entire period that I'm looking at.
0: Uh, and this is our interpretation, well, your interpretation of, of of FDR. I don't think that he was thinking in those in those terms. No. But, uh, but 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 uh, um, the 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 point is, um, or, or or probably a question that might come in some people's mind is, what would be your take then with the new forms of money that are being around today in terms of different forms of digital money? Is this an end of that period of silencing, or has absolutely nothing to do with it?
1: Oh I think that's a great question and I think it's it's really a critical question. So and I think two things are at stake really. The first one is you know there's nothing inherent in a technology that makes it good or bad, right? So digital money is not inherently good or bad. But I think there are two ways of thinking about it. There's on the one hand there is there are projects for making public monetary systems uh digital for creating you know treasury issued uh digital currencies that are safe privacy respecting etc some people call that uh, central bank digital currencies but there is no no reason why that would have to be central banks it could also be a treasury which is a an institution that's more directly connected to democratic control and oversight so if if we would explore that area and you know my colleague uh, rohan gray has uh Developed uh, a number of proposals, and uh, on that, then that could that is, you know, that that could become a way of making money, you know, endogenous, visibly endogenous again. It could have, it could become a way of making people understand that money actually it needs to be, you know, someone makes it, treasury does it, and you know, there's a, there's if the treasury spends more into circulation, we have more money period that's that's the on the one hand that's 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 the, the 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 type of digital money that could that's very compatible with moral economies or that moral economies could even demand that those kinds of money and then there's on the other hand there are all uh, you know the family of 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 so-called currencies including you know uh bitcoin that i think are part of a process of silencing actually because they deny the the idea that money is uh you know a a governance institution that it it can be and maybe should be democratized that maybe uh it's not just about exchange between individuals and creating a neutral background for 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 economic life but that is you know, our most important way of organizing our resources, mobilizing people, mobilizing resources and create a future that works for everyone. Whereas, you know, Bitcoin, I think the dream is to make money exogenous again, right? To make money as exogenous as possible, to to create a, a way of fantasizing that money creation a fantasized way of of thinking about money creation as something outside. Right. So in, in that sense Uh, those projects are really a form of silencing
0: excellent yes then you would be I don't know if you have come across the work of our colleague Lana Schwartz that comes to money from a a media perspective and talks about the creation of money through um, different um, small constituencies and serving um, small groups of people
1: I actually haven't. Uh, I'll have to look that up.
0: Right. Okay. I'll I'll pass on, and I'll I'll will also add it to the to the notes to the to the podcast. Um, right. So, Jacob, thank you very much for your time. And before we leave, I would like to ask you, um, what are you working on now? What is your next big project?
1: My next next big project uh, is. I have several several lined up one of them one of the one of the ones that are uh near and dear you know uh to my heart is thinking about uh, together with my colleague uh, jeren Valaden, to think about how uh you know the role of money as something that create you know in 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 uh in the creation of what 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 people call racial capitalism and how we think about that historically and how we, how a neo-chartalist lens can you know, help us understand racial capitalism uh, differently.
0: Right. Thank you very much uh, there, um, Jacob. And so, thank you very much for being with us at New Book Network. To our subscribers, uh, thank you very much for being with us again. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do so. And if you are, please rank us. Do leave a comment that are very, very helpful. And if you can, follow us in, in Twitter. Um, and uh, there's also the Twitter handle for, for Jacob if you, can learn, if you want to learn more about what he's doing in his next uh, project. Jacob, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.